200 accredited courses and more than 1,000 videos, the Police One Academy is a powerful online solution that provides department training programs with features that reduce time spent on records and policy management, credential tracking, and more. It is law enforcement training made simple and effective. For more information and to get a 30-day trial, visit www.policeoneacademy.com forward slash policing matters. Hello and welcome back to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm Jim Dudley, your host for today. When an active shooter or other critical incident occurs, law enforcement's expected to respond and address, mitigate, or resolve the incident. A critical component to the response are our allies in emergency management to provide life-saving aid to victims and emergency personnel. Do we meet with them enough to understand how they can respond and help? Do we train with them enough? I was lucky enough to meet with Rob Lawrence, expert and consultant in the field of EMS. Rob has served in key EMS leadership roles in the United States over the last decade, notably as the chief operating officer of the internationally recognized Richmond Ambulance Authority in Virginia, and recently as the California COO of Patient Care EMS in Alameda County, California. After a 22-year military career in many pre-hospital and evacuation leadership roles, Rob joined the National Health Service, initially as the Commissioner of Ambulance Services in the east of England. Today, he's now the principal of Robert Lawrence Consulting, where his focus is on assisting organizations improve operational performance, operationalizing data, leadership strategy and techniques, and government and media relations. Please welcome Rob Lawrence. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's get started with this month's critical incident. Uh, we just had one uh, recently in Dallas where a suspect's wearing, uh, he's captured in a photograph mere moments before uh, he begins a shooting spree outside of a federal courthouse there. As the policy of this show, uh, we will not refer to the individual by name. The suspect in the photo is shown in full regalia wearing BDU military style clothing, a balaclava to cover his face, what appears to be a semi-auto, if not fully automatic weapon, and he's wearing a tactical load vest with several ammunition magazines. Surely this is a first responder nightmare scenario. Rob, when you hear about this kind of thing and you're driving in your car or you're at work or heaven forbid uh, it happens in your uh, jurisdiction, what comes to mind when you, when you hear about this thing unfolding? Well, the first thing, of course, is we hope that this ends very, very quickly and we can subdue it. Now, of course, in subduing it, we have to make sure that everybody's safe. Um, the key thing for me always, then, is the communication aspect. And as we've seen from a number of incidents that have happened globally in the last few months, even, and going back all the way back to 9-11, communication is always the first battle. And making sure that we understand what's going on, we understand where things are happening, we understand who is in charge, we understand the structure for that uh, possibly unified command, either at a sort of a, a higher level or indeed on the ground. So those things need to be established very, very quickly. And sometimes that doesn't happen because of the heat of the moment and something that I'm very familiar with from my past life, the fog of war, and things become confused very, very quickly. So I guess having all of those things in place through good drills and through good understanding, good coordination, and good, dare I say, friendships amongst our public safety community are absolutely key. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's where we, we diverge in our duties. And I'd like to ask the, the law enforcement uh, people out there listening in, think about the last time you've performed uh, work on your AED 
or you've supplied a tourniquet to a gushing, uh, bleeding wound, or have you ever even thought of intubating someone who was choking or needed um, to breathe and didn't have the capacity? Um, that's where your side of the house comes in, Rob. And, and what do you see as priorities for the emergency medical response? Well, first of all, just going back to the point that you made, I think in this day and age, we're seeing far more officers with ADs in their cruisers, far more officers that are able to conduct good quality CPR, far more officers that now have their individual first aid kits and that have their, their stop the bleed kits. So it's a job for everybody to try and save that life, not as well as securing the scene, but actually do those very basic things. Mm -hmm. And it's called basic life support for a reason, because it's those things that we do that save the life, whether it's stop the bleed, whether it's deliver CPR. So everybody can do that. From a sort of wider, you know, ambulance uh, 911 response perspective, of course, the, the first ambulance in there, and this is something that people often forget, they try and grab the medic and say, come to the scene. If it's a major incident, that first medic's going to be responsible for that communication, for that command and control until the supervisors or the battalion chiefs or whoever else arrive. And so their job is to actually do the scene size up, to send the message back, to work out exactly what we need next in order to make this event, which is actually you know, creating order out of chaos, make it make it normal again. So the first truck in is going to be doing the scene size up, sending those sit reps back to you know the control to say, I need 10 ambulances, I need 15 ambulances, I need a strike team, I need a SWAT team, I need whatever mm -hmm. we need to do. And that is absolutely key because people think, oh my God, he's got to get in there and help. Well, right. someone's got to send that initial tasking message back. Now we have communication centers. We have, and again, police have communication centers. Fire have communication centers. Ambulance have communication centers. Sometimes they're not even on, you know, they're not in the same building. Right. These days they're virtual. But of course, that scene size up, first of all, is a, is, a, is a key activity. And then everything else flows in to support it thereafter. Right. And, and that's interesting because I think uh, law enforcement first responders tendency is to want to get to the action, right? Uh, you're describing uh, someone going into the mode of setting up an ICS uh, incident command format, uh, making those notifications, getting the extra resources in, uh, thinking about staging areas and, and where people are going to go, triages and things, things like that. So ICS is certainly a part of your response. It is, and, and it is absolutely a part of it. And the, the good thing about the incident command system is it's a, it's a common language, and it's one that we all understand. And I have to say that, you know, fire are exceptionally good at it. EMS, uh, you know, pretty good at it too. I would be, you know, be remiss if I said that police were a little bit late to the party, but actually they've caught up and they're doing really, really well now to actually come into that unified command structure mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in order to understand the, you know, the language in order to be able to articulate the priorities and also to the, therefore gain that command and control and communication. It's three C's, command, control and communication. Sure. We need to have those things in order for it to be successful. Okay, so you go to uh, an incident like Las Vegas where you've got hundreds of casualties. Right. Um, you have a lot of people that are uh, self-evacuating, yep. so you're going to see them on the outer perimeter, uh, but they're able to get to you. What about the people that are lying inside that inner perimeter, maybe a hot zone? Um, I think uh, police have been criticized by the media, by, uh, by pundits who think that there should be more done for people that are bleeding out as the incident unfolds. How do we get a medical response to those people who are on that uh, critical precipice of bleeding out and dying as opposed to people that are able to leave on their own and seek treatment. 
Well, the Las Vegas situation, of course, was a, a live battlefield going on because they couldn't quite identify where the shooter was. He mm -hmm. had a fantastically wide arc of fire mm -hmm. over the, that crowd there. And so it was advancing. Some rescuers were advancing to contact into the battle space in order to rescue the casualties. This is something that folk in Afghanistan could relate to because that's what's happening. You're in a live firing range and it's coming down at you. Right. So, and, and that takes you know a certain, I, I guess, type of courage. And it takes folk that are trained and ready and have that muscle memory to go in there and do it. Now, breaking down your question into parts, I guess, that those that are the walking wounded and... and in, in an incident that's perhaps not as hot as, as the Las Vegas shooter, the first thing we would do is we'd get on the bullhorn and say, if you can walk, stand up and walk towards me and come here. Mm. Let's clear the field of those who can get off and get out of the way. Yeah. And I guess that kind of happened in Las Vegas because people just ran for ran for cover. So, But that would be the first thing is to get those lower acuity people out who might think they're injured. But if you can walk towards me and walk towards the receiving tent, actually, you're going to be okay to, to the, in, the, in, the, in the main. Then, of course, we've got to then work out how we're going to extract those casualties. It was an open it was an open field literally in, in the Las Vegas thing and so people had to advance in there if we're in a more of a closed environment under the sort of normal I guess the normal training we do for active shooter we, we're now into the con concept of the rescue task force you've got law enforcement officers guarding those responders that are coming in in order to you know pretty much stop the bleed render that immediate first aid in order to get the person at least back to the receiving areas where paramedics and other ambulance crews are then going to take those casualties and patients off and evacuate them by priority out. So I think the key thing is it comes back, I dare I say, to you know training hard and fighting easy. We mm -hmm. need to be into the interoperability, the intercommunication, the understanding of how each other works, and ICS is a great platform to do that. And then drilling these things of the rescue task force and the the, the working together. And it's absolutely key because on the battle day then that becomes almost like I say muscle memory. Yes. Um, but you know, there is that fog of war, and in the first few minutes of any incident, of course, the confusion will reign because you know we're not in the in the mind at that moment of the the active shooter, the assailant, or whoever. So we have to do our best. Um, now, of course, there's con the concession about health and safety, mm -hmm. and you know we, we can have a whole debate about you know when health and safety rules apply. Do we do risk assessments, etc.? Well, when people's lives are on the line, I sus I would suspect we do what we all trained and want to do, which is get in there and help out. But right, right. Well, uh, I see conflicts in uh, roles and responsibilities with uh, police and fire all the time. Um, a lot of times, uh, if there's an active shooter, uh, we usually see fire stage uh, on an outer perimeter and wait till the scene is cold, that it's secure, that we've identified a shooter, um, that we've suppressed a threat, if you will. So now um, we have uh, occasionally on a SWAT team, you have a, a specialist who is trained in a higher level than your regular first aid. At what level do you think we need to evolve into having a cop doc in the stack? Uh, somebody with specific medical expertise who could go in with a SWAT team or a, a strike team to go into a, a hostile environment? Well, starting from the beginning basic life support is basic and so therefore if everybody has those skills around stop the bleed hemorrhage control mm -hmm. that's a life saved if you can arrest the bleeding in a limb you're saved to life um, having a SWAT doc I'm, I'm over in Alameda County we have a very active SWAT program we actually have physicians that work uh, alongside uh, the, the various uh, police departments over there Alameda County Sheriff's Office Oakland PD etc so mm -hmm. we have the team that supports all of the police departments over on the East Bay here in San Francisco 
Francisco. So that, that comes up to having a physician, having the medics that uh, have not only, of course, their advanced paramedic skills, but of course have some modicum of what to do and how to work and how to operate and how to speak with those SWAT officers that are actually involved at the sharp end. So again, I'm, I've, I've spent a lot of time talking about how the cop should learn the first aid bit. Also, the SWAT medics are also learning the cop bit. Right. Now, there's a debate whether the medic should carry a gun. I know in, I think in Florida and other places, there's legislation that's going through to say, well, the, you know, the medic can be armed, etc. Mm. Perhaps another, another story for another time. Yeah. But of course, there again, it's that interoperability. It's having the skills and equipment and understanding of how, knowing how, in this case, the, the, the police department's going to work and how we can support that. But so... There, there are already those physicians in the field that are working with uh, with, with with docs. The Dallas shooting, actually, uh, I happen to know that the, the the doctor that works with the Dallas SWAT team, um, Alex Eastman, is also one of the lead trauma surgeons in the the, the, the level one trauma centre in Dallas. And so there is that level of integration already. And I know that Alex was on duty uh, that day uh, and was part of the SWAT team that responded to it. Oh, nice. So so we're seeing examples of that happen already. Well, that's great. Well, I think we're going to wrap up, and clearly we need to meet our counterparts across disciplines to develop clear and comprehensive plans to address and meet the challenges of critical incidents. Unfortunately, these incidents will occur again. I think it's our good luck to have you here, Rob. Rob Lawrence, uh, here in California, Northern California. I think it's Virginia's loss, and uh, we thank uh, England for letting you come over. I've got a question for our listeners, uh, and jump in if, you, if you'd like, Rob. How are the relationships between law enforcement first responders in your authority? Um, what's the relationship with EMT responders, fire, fire, firefighters, and emergency dispatchers? What works? What do we need to do to improve response and life-saving efforts? Leave us a comment in the space below or email us at policingmatters at police1.com. That's policing matters at policeone.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all you do to help keep us safe. And please be safe yourselves. Thanks, Rob, for coming aboard. Thank you very much. And let me just give you one comment on that last question. You and bet. I think I'm going to say is familiarity breeds success. I love it. Okay, until next time, I'm Jim Dudley. Thanks for listening.